0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie
1: and I'm Isabel and today we have special guest Ben with us. So Ben if you'd like to introduce yourself and kind of tell us just a brief introduction of what you do and who you are.
2: Sure. Um, (laughs) Hi everybody, my name is Ben Schaefer. I'm currently a doctoral student at University of Illinois Chicago and the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, Illinois. Um, primarily, I'm in the Department of Anthropology, but I also um, am in the Departments of Latin American and Latino Studies and Gender and Women's Studies at UIC, um, as well as a scientific researcher and or scientific research affiliate and uh, <clears throat> assistant or intern for repatriations at the Field Museum of Natural History. Um, part of my research, uh, mostly I specialize in Andean bioarchaeology uh, that broadly touches upon the social embodiment of disease and psychosocial stress prior to death. Uh, the most uh, contexts that I usually work in are sacrifi- sacrificial and warfare type contexts. Although I have been known to dabble in other areas and other contexts.
1: Cool, so kind of a question we ask everybody when they come on the show, but like what got you into anthropology in the first place?
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> it's actually I don't know if it's an interesting story, but um, <laughs> I had no idea what anthropology was like most people uh, in high school. And I was really interested and still am uh, in world, into world languages and learning world languages. And so I thought I was gonna go to college to major in Spanish and Italian because um, mostly I wanted a job that forced me to travel because I grew up in rural Western Massachusetts in a town of like 300. So <laughs> going to a bigger city sounded so desirable. And uh, so my best friend at the time, uh, Shirley, who has now married and gone off and done her own life, uh, she introduced me to anthropology, um, mostly on the forensic side uh, where I thought, yeah, that's interesting, but not entirely what I wanted to do, which I'll get to in a second, but um, (laughs) I kind of went through the motions of going through cultural anthropology and then linguistic anthropology and then somehow found myself doing biological anthropology uh, in college and focusing on bioarchaeology and forensics. So somehow I did this giant circle of coming here, but had no interest uh, until you know friends told me about it. And I started learning more and studying more cultures and seeing like how this research really impacts uh, communities and such. Um, yeah, that's pretty much how I got into it kind of weird not really the normal path I guess
0: (laughs) yeah that's really cool I I find really cool I I... um that when we're talking to people on the show everybody has something unique and it's not usually just like a straightforward like oh I thought it was cool I I just did it it's it's always something really um unique and a really neat way to get into it so that's really cool um how you ended up there um, so in terms of your research, can you like tell us a little bit, kind of set the scene, the who, what, why, where, one of it?
2: Uh, like how I got into the type of research I do now?
0: Sure, or... yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> that sounds like a really good question. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: okay. Um, so I matriculated to Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia after my bachelor's. And so what I really wanted to focus on was structural violence, um, and uh, trauma in like the South area of Peru, um, where I did my undergraduate thesis research on. So looking at like conflict of cultures and whatnot, and I was really interested in these ideas of like gender and sex uh, in these contexts of trauma and violence. And so when I matriculated to Georgia State, uh, my advisor, Bethany Turner, shout out, um, she <laughs> runs the bioarchaeology lab. And so what she specializes in is stabilized topes and more of that molecular type of anthropology which at the time I thought was funny because I'm like, this is witchcraft. This is not real, Uh, which then because under her tutelage and getting more experience in the lab, I realized just how actually amazing stabilized soap research in bioarchaeology and archeology span is. So definitely don't knock anything until you try it. Um, (laughs) uh, She collaborates with a lot of other Andeanists as well as other scholars that are interested in these questions of like, diet and structural violence and uh, social inequality based on uh, food and uh, like migration patterns. And so working with her, I was able to get access to some samples from a previous paper that uh, she worked on looking at uh, dietary uh, paleo-dietary trends of sacrificed individuals from Waca de los Sacrificios, or uh, Pyramid of the Sacrifices, which is in the north coast of Peru in the Lombayake Valley. And so because of that, I was really interested in these questions of like epigenetics and how stress and these forms of trauma are intergenerationally inherited in some ways. And so while I was interested in still pursuing those questions, um, I sort of think about like, well, what can we do with hair? Uh, how are these things that preserve amazingly in the Andes? Like, what can we do with that? Cause no one's really doing much with it. And so, uh, over the course of my first year, I started to start thinking about like what kind of project I wanted to do for my master's um, and finding a scholar uh, by the name of Emily Webb, who actually basically set the scaffolding for the type of research I do now, um, where she was looking at uh, cortisol levels in just uh, before death as a composite of five different sites in Peru. Uh, which is remarkable, again, given just hair doesn't really preserve well elsewhere besides in Peru, where we have like natural mummification happening. Um, and so, because of that, I started thinking about well, if I have these hair strands, I could potentially look at stress prior to sacrifice and the months leading up by reconstructing their life histories. So, while the idea of like sacrifice as this really awesome, interesting, uh, you know biocultural phenomena that occurred. <clears throat> uh, which is great. I'm interested in what those uh, life histories and those experiences up to the point of death, what, why were they chosen? What kind of experiences did they endure prior to sacrifice? What, you know, who were these people trying to get at this like biosocial life? Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time, I mean, I, you know, went through the motions uh, where I thought I was gonna switch my topic to like trepanation uh, or holes in the head uh, in Peru during an in Inca period context. Uh, because I was like you know what this is like this isn't cool this is I don't want to be known as the hair guy because that's weird <laughs> and ultimately I was like you know what I'll just do it like I've already done all this work uh, I guess I probably you know whatever and so that's kind of where I I guess started slash used as a springboard and because of this and the research that I did in my master's I got noticed to by a few other scholars at like Harvard and Tulane and Uh, now got on to the project at de Las Llamas working with Dr. Gabriel Prieto and his archaeological team uh, which is basically what I'm doing with my master's thesis on the Inca period sacrifices at Huacadillo Sacrificios but now doing it at a larger site um, that has over 200 sacrificed individuals and camelids uh, on the north coast of Peru so um, during the Chimú empire so pre-Inca so Pretty much not the same thing but similar things in a way and now people when they see me they're like oh yeah the hair guy and i'm like dang that's literally <laughs> not what i wanted but i guess it works because people know who i am <laughs>
0: i think that's, oh, cool, that's though, so because, cool <laughs> i mean everybody's studying like bones or right like you don't really hear about people studying hair and oh, mainstream
2: <laughs> yeah and it's like it's cool and it's i don't know it's uh, It's great because I also have to study the bones and understand the trauma and pathologies, Mm -hmm. right? Because these um, morphological and bony changes obviously are signs of acute or chronic stressors, depending on what we're talking about. And so knowing how that's affecting the bony changes, it's also gonna be um, solidified in hair as like cortisol becomes a biomarker uh, solidified in the hair strand. So like if you went through chronic or excuse me chronic stress periods it's going to show in the hair and you can reconstruct that
0: yeah that's so, so cool like,
2: it's, oh, it's like bioarchaeology plus like endocrine yeah. call it paleoendocrinology
1: um i don't that think anybody is so really cool. about it, but. yeah that's so fascinating even just like looking at the posters that you sent us it's like so cool seeing these like mummified bodies with like the full heads of hair and it's like wow that's like kind of I don't know, humanizes them in a way that's like very unique, I find. Um, so, I was actually, you mentioned it kind of briefly about the preservation of hair in uh, mummified remains, but like, is there a certain context where hair is preserved, or like, why is it preserved some places and not in others, if you know?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, so, natural mummification occurs in environmental extreme contexts. Uh, So that could be extreme aridity, extreme heat, extreme wetness, extreme whatever. Um, And just given to, or talking about the uh, environmental extremes in the Andes, given that there's two mountain ranges, uh, you're on the equator, um, you know, all this, it's almost like this confluence of like, environmental extremes in different ways. So because of that, oh, and the high altitude also, and so because of all these just happening, you're more than likely to find like mummified remains. Uh, what's interesting is that these sacrifices I walk, uh, well, Waca, Juanchiquito Las Llamas, is that it's on the coast and that is pretty unusual, just given how, the proximity to the Pacific Ocean. Whereas other places such as like uh, these wakas or these sacred spaces or pyramids, um, you know it's its own enclosed area so that kind of makes sense with the aridity and the environment and the dryness Uh, but with the coastal sacrifices it is a little it's interesting to know that we are getting this soft tissue um so like if we look at other places like south asia or other places in africa or europe um based on the soil composition and the type of environment it doesn't always we usually get skeletonization instead of this mummification um however I will say uh, there is evidence of like bog bodies. I don't know if that's like the PC term, um, but individuals that were basically thrown into peat moss bogs, they mummify because solely that peat moss is an environmental extreme where we see these like amazingly preserved like Roman era. Um, some people suggest that they're sacrifices, others suggest that they're tributes uh, in a separate way. Um, but because of that, in general, those environmental extremes allow for like hair to preserve. We get fingernails. Uh, One individual that I have like has an ear still. Um, I think on one of the posters I sent you like the, I have a a woman or a person with braids and I think it's like the half chest is mummified. I mean, it's just remarkable the amount of preservation that we get in the Andes. I mean, I'm very fortunate.
0: Yeah, that's remarkable (laughs) Um, because I mean just, in different times and places, you've got such different preservation, and that's really cool that you get to work with that degree of preservation. Um, so, when you're when you're looking um, for these stress markers in hair, uh, in say, sacrifice victims, uh, how do you how can you tell that somebody somebody's being sacrificed?
2: Yeah, um, great question. It's interesting because. So I'll start with Inca period sacrifices because that's the best known accounts that we have from ethnohistorical Spanish chronicles, um, as well as people just study, early scholars only studying the Inca essentially. Uh, but they had this form of human sacrifice called Capacocha, which what I like to describe it as, as essentially Hunger Games-esque, uh, where families would volunteer their children if they, were already, if they weren't already selected. Um, and they would be brought to the uh, indigenous capital, so Cusco, wind and dine for about a year. Sometimes, you know, it kind of depends. Um, and then they would be marched up to a um, mountaintop or Apu or grandfather, you know, sacred space in uh, Quechua, where they would also be chewing coca, the coca leaf that kind of like numbs you um, and kind of gets you a little high. You'll be drinking like fermented chicha, which is like a, a maize, um, alcoholic beverage that you can still get in Peru, which is great. And then bludgeoned over the head um, and left. So there's that form, which we have, you know, multiple highly stylized, ritualized killings um, that we see in like Northwest Argentina that was like a limit of the Inca empire. Um, We see some in like Arequipa, which is Southern Peru um, and a few others. Whereas the kind of sacrifices that we see on the North coast is quite different, where we, um, in some certain spaces, so the stuff that I'm doing with Chimu, it's a little bit different, but even with the Inca period on the North coast, all we see is just Inca influence, but not really an Inca sacrifice. So what we know on the bones specifically are sharp force trauma or cut marks, usually around the, um, sternum, on the ribs, like around where the heart is. Um, we'll also see cut marks on like the vertebral body, on the anterior vertebral body. So just looking at those and like the amount of them suggests sacrifice, sacrificial context. Um, though I will say, depending on like the time period and like who you're looking at, you see some places are more interested in like chest mutilation and trying to like get at the heart and take that out. Or you just see like full-on decapitation which is you know very different from just this almost like romanticized idea of inca period sacrifices where you get bludgeoned over the hood
1: lovely <laughs> um so i'm just gonna like throw it to like explain it like on five um like court like can you just kind of explain like how you study like cortisol and like what like how that relates to stress and like what does it mean in hair?
2: <laughs> yeah, so um, I was just talking with my grant writing group about this because I love and hate the term stress because it becomes this concept that we are all familiar with in various contexts where right? you could be stressed about work about schoolwork, about some other kind of event in your life to, I don't know, I get stressed walking outside and not seeing people wearing masks. Like, you know, we have all these (laughs) different contexts, but it's all about this perceivedness of these types of stressors that are in our lives. And so when that happens, it's playing onto this fight or flight response, which is like the salient model of allostatic load of stress, meaning that the type of stress that I under, that I endure is gonna be different from you to another person so we all are kind of like on this like wavy fluctuating ideas of like what is considered stress um but while that's happening our bodies produce this uh hormone cortisol in humans uh, in animals we call it glucocorticoid which is just a scientific name for animal cortisol <laughs> um so when that happens our body is essentially trying to mediate those stressors so that we're not at this like heightened stressed uh, response constantly, because in short term, it's, you know, good, it's evolutionary that we see a perceived threat or stressor, and we either decide to run away, or to like fight, right? Whereas long endured periods of stress are obviously bad, because they alter our brain chemistry, they can alter our memory, it can, you know, induce all other negative health outcomes. But while that's happening our hair is also growing constantly, although depending on like the growth period, it might be like a two-week delay. Um, but so when that's happening, it, the keratinization of our hair, it also takes on cortisol and other hormones um, and elements such as like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, sulfur, stuff like that. I've also done stabilized to work with the hair. <laughs> um, and so while that's going on the, and the hair is growing, it becomes metabolically inert, meaning that it's essentially a non-living entity on us, right? We, when we get haircuts, it doesn't hurt necessarily solely because the hair is not necessarily alive. Um, but because of that, it solidifies a biomarker of cortisol throughout the hair strand. And so, hair grows at about a centimeter a month, give or take. Um, and obviously, these are mediated by like nutrition, stress, um, you know, other cultural factors as well that influence biology. But um, on average, it's about a centimeter, and so when you measure out the hair strand, you can reconstruct months, month-to-month variation of, for me, cortisol or isotopes to reconstruct these types of like life histories prior to death. Whereas the hair strand where the follicle is would be, you know, closest to death or like at time of death, and then the last time you cut it um, would suggest you know whatever month that is. So, for example let's say I did this on myself right now. Uh, Let's see, it's October 21st. So I would know that today, October 21st to September 21st, we might see spikes in cortisol because I'm getting towards the grant deadlines. But (laughs) when I reconstructed, even let's say stuff that happened to me in June that might show a spike in cortisol or even at the uh, beginning of this pandemic, um, we might see spikes in cortisol, but over time, we also have to realize that these types of stresses that we constantly endure, they we also um, normalize them biologically, meaning that we all know that the pandemic is happening. And yeah, at the beginning, it was scary and kind of inconsistent. Nobody had really good information. Our faithful leader was spewing misinformation, you know, like just stuff like that, where it's like scary at the beginning. But now, because I know that this pandemic is happening, it's kind of like normalized it where it's. I can't really register a pandemic through these months, maybe at the beginning, but now it might be something else. But because of that, also, sorry about this long-winded ex- explanation.
1: Oh, it's fascinating.
2: Um, <laughs> um, thank you. So because of that and the months leading up, let's say uh, my cortisol levels were incredibly high at the beginning, because of that, I need to have something that was equally or more um, a perceived threat essentially to register that kind of same um, cortisol production level to mitigate any kind of stress. And so uh, inversely we see this with like more clinical um, studies studying cortisol in humans where uh, the production actually gets altered and deregulated in certain circumstances such as like depression, anxiety, um, and domestic violence. So there's a lot of things to consider. It's cool when you are working with living people, but when they were sacrificed about 600 years ago and they don't want to talk to you, it is a little bit (laughs) more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm kidding. I was also just wondering, because like, I know you said it grows at a centimeter a month, I think. Anyway, so you're studying it specifically in sacrificial victims. So that's like, how fast can you, like how fast does that spike occur? Like, would it take a matter of, like days, like, I don't know how to word this properly, where it's like, would it just be like the little tip of the hair that's, what am I saying? (laughs) Like, like when does it show up? Yeah, like Like, how fast does it take to show up in the hair, I guess, (laughs) thank you, Katie.
2: (laughs) So our hair is constantly, I mean, we could like break it down and say like, our hair grows at uh, exorbitantly small uh, measurement per hour, But I mean, you know, when you get down to that, it's like, how are you gonna cut that? Like, how do you even get at that? (laughs) Um, So by doing the month uh, thing, it's a a composite essentially, but if those, the time leading up to sacrifice, and this is, you know, everybody of course too, um, but for these sacrificial contexts, sorry, um, because of these sacrificial contexts, it would have created a climate of fear regardless, like even if you understood it as this honorific ritual or um, socially mediated by culture in a way that's like, yeah, it's whatever, I'm just gonna be sacrificed, you know, right up to that moment before you die or um, are executed by the state, it would have created a climate of fear that would have altered the production of cortisol. And so for the hair, depending on like the two month or two week, excuse me, gap, it would almost be readily going. So at the time of sacrifice, your body would have, producing, uh, would have been producing uh, exponential amount of cortisol for that to like register. And so until that cessates, which might happen, I don't know, like a couple, let's say an hour after death, because your body's still somewhat living, right? You just not entirely there. Um, it would be embedded into the hair but it would have been like right at the follicle. So what I do also to kind of like offset this issue is I rehydrate the follicles to see what type of uh, growth that they were in. And it's interesting because like not all your hair is like in like uh, the telogen phase, so like the active growth phase. Um, Whereas some are, some aren't, it's kind of just like all over as I'm sure, I don't know if you noticed, but some parts of your hair might grow faster or you're like why is this like side weird you know whatever um but because of that usually with the hair because of the preservation I'm able to take um like I don't want to say like a good chunk but like enough that like if that hair follicle is telling me that it was not growing at time of death usually I have like five or six that do which is pretty cool
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for being able to interpret my crazy question. That's exactly (laughs) what I was looking for. So, um,
0: I guess like you said, you've, you've done your data, your data collection. You've, I can't talk now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess kind of, um, like based on what you've done in the past and what you're doing now, do you, do you have any like preliminary findings or findings in the past that you think were really cool or really unexpected or expected mm-hmm. but like still <laughs> <I> think, yeah
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so my samples for my dissertation right now are in export limbo and that's only due to the um, the pandemic honestly. So stuff like that I've worked on more the theoretical side than the actual mm-hmm. data. Um, just so I'm doing something. <laughs> but with my previous research with the Inca period sacrifices, it's interesting because it was mostly children that was included in the study. And what I found was that the, what I was getting was not necessarily, um, it wasn't registering the sacrifice event itself despite all the hair samples in those eight children. Um, there was also two adults, but they're whatever. Um, they were in active growth. So what I actually was getting was incredibly low cortisol levels, which was weird. And what this actually might be picking up is potentially the emergence of gender roles as they start to mediate these types of hormone production based on like estradiol and testosterone. Um, However, I haven't really explored that beyond uh, like to actually look at like Uh, testosterone, estradiol for everybody, but that's just kind of like where I'm thinking because otherwise the other context would be to suggest that they're enduring constant domestic violence, but not having that context. I don't want to go down that route, even though it almost seems logical because it is a sacrifice site, but (laughs) I'm not going to say that. Um, However, some other cool things that I've done in the southern, uh, south of Peru at my advisors, uh, dissertation site at the site of Estuquenia. This is a site where during the LIP, the late intermediate period, so about 1100-ish to 1470-ish common era or AD, it's almost this period of like balkanization. There's not really major dominant empires in this area. The only one is on the north coast, the Chimu. But on the south coast, like the Tiwanaku and the Wari collapsed uh, and are politically renegotiating in different ways. Um, so it's almost just like life sucks like it's just bad (laughs) it's just not a fun time people are moving upwards to the hills because uh constant fighting but some of the cool things that I found with these individuals that because of how long the hair strand I had I was able to reconstruct about three years of life and so one interesting thing that I got was about a nine month to 10 month period of heightened uh threefold or excuse me tenfold uh cortisol levels from this one individual which actually suggests that i think it was four months before they died they were um pregnant and what i saw was cortisols for pregnancy for like a a specific nine-month period which without the you know the fetal remains or any kind of like other uh physical context of that we wouldn't be able to tell that
1: that's so cool (laughs) Yeah, I love how these, really... there's sorry, there's no, just these I... cool markers in the body. I feel like that we've talked to some people on um on this show but like there's just like you can s- narrow it down so much I feel like to like months of people's lives. And I feel like that's such a cool part of bioarchaeology is like bringing these people's narratives back to life and that's awesome that you're doing it.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. And even with a pregnancy <laughs> thing, I can think that there there's a lot of implications for that bioarchaeologically. In that, you know, if, if we're only looking for fetal remains or other bony signs of, I mean, are there other bony signs of pregnancy? I mean, I can't think of, but I mean, th- the implications for that are remarkable. So um, we're, we're heading to the end of this, this uh, half hour, which is, feels like literally five minutes because this has been just fascinating to me. <laughs>
1: Um, I know. like so many questions for, we didn't ask. both
0: of us have been tripping over our words because our minds are just like processing this yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um i might have to do it too
0: <laughs> yeah oh yeah 100 you're welcome on the show anytime um <laughs> but um yeah we'll do our non-human listener shout out of the week so if you have a non-human listener you want to shout out to
2: i do i'm surprised she has not come back over here oh she's sleeping on my bed that's why um my little uh, vampire kitty cascara who i want to give a shout out she's super cute and her canines are too big for her mouth so they like pop out so she looks like a little vampire
0: oh my god that's oh, adorable that's so sweet all right well thanks so much for joining us um so again super fascinating um and uh thanks to all our listeners out there and uh see you next time or listen to you. You'll be listening to us next time. (laughs) Bye everyone.